You're listening to That'll Preach, a weekly podcast with uh, me and my buddy Paul. I'm Brian. This is Paul. Paul, say hi to the world. Hi to the world. Paul is, uh, we've already bragged on you a little bit, but he is a recently minted doctor of philosophy, the doctor that doesn't really help people. But, or uh, arguably the doctor that helps all the people. Or the doctor that defines what helping people even means. Ah, there you go. Get paid the big bucks. Right. But uh, Paul likes <clears> to <throat> throw his weight around with his doctor title. He gives advice. He gives medical advice. <laughs> and, and he doesn't even uh, have and any And it works. It. And it works. That's the amazing thing. But uh, we're glad to have you here. And, and you're leaving in two days. You're moving away from That's Tallahassee, right. Florida, to the great land of Michigan, Forever. Where you will be forever, where you will be a professor teaching at Hillsdale College, great mm-hmm. college. And uh, it's crazy that you're going to be gone. But I know. But, it's been so long. But the but the podcast, this podcast, this award-winning podcast will not <laughs> cease. It will continue on and Paul will continue on with it. Paul will be doing, uh, we will be doing this podcast long distance now. We're going to enter into a long distance relationship. <laughs> it's going to make it. We're going to make it. And uh, we'll continue bringing you this riveting content for you. But uh, we have been going through a series on old dead guys. We actually did this a while ago. Yep. It's hard to believe we started this podcast at the beginning of the pandemic. Because we were like, yeah. man, nothing's open. So we might as well start a podcast. It's been a year and a half. It's been a year and a We've half. We've done a lot. It's crazy. But uh, we had a series early on called Old Dead Guys where we looked at different themes mm-hmm. and uh, looked at them through the eyes of different historical figures in the church. And uh, we are sort of taking that same spirit and going back way early mm-hmm. to look at the people right after the apostles, right? So the, the disciples of the apostles, the guys who actually not only knew the letters of Paul, but knew Paul and knew Paul's interpretation of his own letters. Not only knew John the apostle, but but uh, not only knew his letters, but also knew John and were discipled by him and taught doctrine and how to read his letters by him. So we have a unique insight into the interpretive tradition uh, through these this first generation after the apostles. These were the guys who had the weird accountability conversations with Paul, Peter, and John. Yeah, can you imagine Basically. That? Paul and Peter's just like, you've been reading your Bible? You've been reading my letters every day? You've been meditating on my letters? How you doing? You know, but uh, we're looking at three of what they call the apostolic fathers. Again, these are the, this is the first generation of Christian leaders after the apostles who were directly trained by the apostles or, yep. and knew the apostles. And that is Clement of Rome. We looked at that last week. Polycarp. Not the Pokemon, if that is a Pokemon, but he was uh, the first martyr, the first martyr outside of the New Testament. We looked at him in the first episode of this series. First recorded martyr. First recorded one. And then we're also looking at, today, Ignatius of Antioch. Not to be confused with Ignatius of Loyola. Right. There's Good clarification, because <laughs> a lot of people were like, are they talking about Loyola? Are you talking about Loyola? Are you talking about Antioch? So, uh, but uh, one of the things that's been really great about this is i mean paul and i we uh, this is like we're wading into this ourselves this isn't like stuff we study deeply we're just sort of looking at the text and being like these are some interesting things these guys are saying but uh it's important to remember that we don't just have the bible we have a tradition that comes with it now the tradition is under the authority of the bible and, and you see that in these early church fathers uh but it's passed down through people yep uh that you know if you just sort of read your bible by yourself on an island you end up becoming a jehovah's witness Right. Or you end up coming up with all these weird, crazy things. So we not just have we don't just have the Bible. We have a teaching tradition that comes alongside it to preserve 
the unity of the church to preserve the church itself. And uh, but again, these aren't scripture. And the guys who are writing this recognize that it's not scripture. They don't true. think that they're writing Holy Spirit inspired texts. Um, but we we covered all this in the other episodes, so you can go check those out. Also, you better not forget about my hot take. Yeah, that's right. I know. All right, Paul, I th- Paul's I th- got I th- a hot th- take. Were... Wait, is it my hot take this week? It's my hot take. It's your hot take this week. Yeah, we also start our shows with hot takes, unpopular opinions, just to you know, this is so we can maybe get an endorsement from somebody one day. Maybe. That, that that's or why get we do canceled it. immediately. <laughs> but uh, again, we are. If you've been a longtime listener of our podcast, I'm sure you have. <laughs> Uh, we have switched over from the Forks Midtown channel to a separate channel, a Battle Preach channel. And uh, the link should be in the show notes. So make sure you subscribe to that so you can get the updated episodes. Sweet. Without further ado, Paul, hit us with your hot take. So this is actually a pet peeve of mine. And it comes up all the time when you're arguing with someone. So let's say you're talking to somebody and then you say something like, uh, I don't know, I think God exists as a trinity. And then they go... Well, I'd argue that God is not a trinity. Oh, are you going to bring that conversation we had up again? <laughs> Brian with his weird heresies. I know. No, but like the person says, oh, yeah. So I'd argue that God is not a trinity and then just stops there and assumes that that phrase is itself an argument. That That's my pet peeve. When someone says, oh, yeah, well, actually, I'd argue that this and they just stop and never say anything after that. And you're like waiting and all right, well, what's the argument? And they go what are you talking about? I just said I'd argue for this, and it's just annoying. So what? What can you using distil- the phrase? Yeah, I'd argue that X as an argument for X. Oh, I see. Without actually providing an exactly. argument. Exactly. Do you think that's an argument in itself? And it's annoying. It's really just saying I'd like to just throw out this opinion. Yes, I'd like to just give this unsupported claim, and you have to not question me. I, you know, I, that is when Happens people have. Time. A very strong opinion about something they haven't thought through or read about mm-hmm. or studied. You should have you should have a confidence in something according to, you know, if not your own like level of looking into it, but based upon the people you talk to or or, or like the, yeah. the are the people that you're listening to trustworthy? Yeah, and are you yourselves a trustworthy? source you know thinking are, are you actually a good discerner of who's a good person to listen to <laughs> here's another way of putting the hot take someone says oh this author argues that we should all be better parents and you go right. okay what's the argument what they mean yeah, to say is that he, what he concludes is or what his view is right. what his position is but that's not the argument itself could it be an to give Are, an argument is to have like reasons in support of a conclusion. That's but can't the argument. But it's but not just the conclusion also itself. Authority? Like if a really trusted person in a certain field yeah. says something, can't you use that as far as your argument? Well, yeah, yeah. You, you can you can cite an a, a, an expert and say right. this is evidence for why we should believe this, but just the claim itself is not an argument. That that's what I'm getting. People confuse claims and conclusions with arguments. Saying my argument is God exists. That's not your argument. That's your conclusion. That's your position. That's what yeah, you believe. But, I think they're, but they're trying to. What they're trying to say is my. What I'm trying to put forth. Oh, I see. What you're saying the, an, an argument is a collection of pieces of evidence or reasons in support of a conclusion. It's the whole thing together. Right. It's reasons plus conclusion. A lot of people use the term argument just to mean this is my conclusion. Well, this is what I believe. I would argue that that's not what 
Uh, the <laughs> issue is, <laughs> I would argue that you're wrong. I would argue that arguments are. I'm dying on the inside. Fine. Yeah, I know. Basically, every time someone makes that sentence, I'd argue that I just get triggered. I'd That's all that, that I'm saying. I'd argue that you're triggered too easily. Yeah. And if you get triggered by that statement, you've what's, just proved what's, my argument. What's your argument for that? I don't have one. And the fact <laughs> that you're triggered proves my argument. There False. But there you go. Well, if only we had somebody to adjudicate between these matters, which like, brings like us a, to like a bishop, like a bishop, right? <laughs> now, this is a uh, again. These are early church fathers, and we're just going to look at what they said. We're not necessarily saying that this is the prescribed vision of the church or anything like right, that. Right? They say some weird stuff. They say some like weird the phoenix. stuff. Right? Last week we looked at Clement <laughs> talking about a phoenix yep. being a real animal, <laughs> and uh, so you know, don't take these as these are not canon, um, but they are helpful. I mean, I think sure. that's the one thing we can look at. I mean, we have many helpful Christian books today that we wouldn't say are part of the Bible, that we would say have errors in them that aren't always correct, but they're helpful nevertheless. And so, you know, we can say the same thing with these early letters. Now, right. the things we're going to look at today in Ignatius, these are letters that he's written to a bunch of different churches. Mm -hmm. And what you have to remember is in the early church, what you seem to have were the apostles we're like, well, once we die, we're going to have to make sure that we have authorized teachers that can help people understand our letters right. and understand our teaching and teach what we taught. So they appointed bishops or they appointed elders. And what seems to have happened is these elders were uh, teachers in uh, the different churches that were planted. And these elders would also be connected to each other. So these local elders would be connected in in sort of a what he, he would call them the presbyters. That's yeah. another word for elders. Right. These elders would all gather with other elders in a local region. And then it seems through history and very, remember, you know, uh, Ignatius, I think he was, uh, when was he? He so was. Scholars actually don't know when he was born. Right. And it's debated when he died. Some people date it at 110, some date closer to 130, 140. There's just not a lot of evidence about his life in the same way we have for Polycarp and Clement. Right. What we know is uh, St. Ignatius was called Theophorus. That's his also, it's his Which his means God-bearer. Right. He was born in Syria around the, probably around the year 50. They think he died between 98 and 117. So if you think about that, he was born about uh, 20, almost 20 years after the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Right. And so he would have been uh, a young child, a, a boy, maybe a, a preteen during the time of the book of Acts. So yeah. he probably grew up in the church or, you know, had family in the church. And so he's, he's very early on. Some people date his birth to even during the life of Jesus. And one tradition says that he was one of the children that was around Jesus when he said, <laughs> maybe. Let, let the children eh. cock me. Eh. There's a lot of Who strange knows? legends that accrued. Again, but with history, yeah. there's all these, it's very sparse. you don't really know for sure. Regardless though, what we see though is Ignatius has a very strong, theology of the church. He has a very strong understanding of uh, ecclesiology, yeah. right? Or and theology authority. Of the church and authority. Mm -hmm. And uh, what he does is he's now, when he's writing these letters to these different churches in different regions, uh, he is writing as a bishop. So he's a leader of multiple groups of elders of multiple regions. He's the Bishop of Antioch, Bishop, right, of, bishop of Syria, Antioch, Right, basically. he's a Bishop of Syria. Yeah. So in, in the Antioch region, there's mm -hmm. a bunch of little churches. Each of these churches have elders. These right. elders all gather together as a presbytery, essentially. Yep. And then that group of elders, presbyters, is under the authority of this bishop. And this bishop is among these other bishops right. who sort of all the serve different regions alongside have one, one another. Yep. Right. 
Uh, and f- a fun fact, he wrote all of, so we're, we read seven of his letters today. Right. Th- those are the ones that are authentic. Uh, he wrote these when he was on his way from Antioch to Rome to be executed. Right. So he's a martyr. Yeah. And uh, he's got a pretty gnarly martyrdom he does. story. Yep. Maybe we can start with that. We'll start with the end of his life. Uh, he, he writes about uh, basically the emperor Trajan. Mm-hmm. He defeats a bunch of uh, armies and then... He's trying to consolidate his power and he sees Christians as a threat to that. They won't bow down to the Roman gods. And so uh, Ignatius kind of says, you know what? I'm going to stand up against this idolatry, asking us to to bow toward Roman gods. And so Trajan kind of says, why aren't you worshiping our gods? You're an evil guy. And and he basically responds saying, uh, don't call me wicked, right? Because if you're a servant of God, this is a paraphrase, you're a servant of God, you have no wicked spirits. But if you think that because I'm, I'm wicked just because I don't respect your gods, I want you to know that I have Christ, the King of Heaven, with me, and I destroy all those evil spirits. Yeah. <laughs> so he's just like, look, I'm not going to worship your gods. Your gods are evil spirits, and I worship Christ, who's the only true God, who kills evil spirits that you worship. So that's the version you get from Eusebius. That's true. And then there's other versions that put it not with Trajan, but with later Roman emperors. But okay. the, 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 the the gist or the structure of the story is the same. He gets arrested in Antioch and then is taken to Rome for execution. And most scholars say he died uh, in the Colosseum or thrown to wild animals. He talks about that a lot in his letters, yeah, going, going to the wild beasts. He says, uh, may I enjoy the wild beasts that are prepared for me? This is yeah. in his letter to the Romans. May I enjoy the wild beasts that are prepared for me. And I pray that they may be found eager to rush upon me, which also I will entice to devour me speedily. (laughs) (laughs) And then he says, uh, this is a great line. This is in, again, in his letter to the Romans. Let fire and the cross, with the crowds of wild beasts, let tearings, breakings, and dislocations of bones, let cutting off of members, let shatterings of the whole body, and let all the dreadful torments of the devil come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. Now, again, sometimes there's a little bit of, uh, what is it, hagiography, a little bit of embellishment Yeah. Uh, sometimes. So, you know, we, uh, I, I think we can say that he was a courageous martyr. Are these verbatim what he said? We don't know. Well, this, I mean, this but, comes from his own mouth. Like, right. This is him writing to the Romans. So that's he's true. saying uh, the, the stuff about his appearance before oh, right. Trajan, yeah, that's, that's the right. stuff that came that's later. Right. So but this is, okay. His letter well, to the Romans is all, himself yeah, writing. That's legit. Yeah, that's yeah. legit. Okay. Okay. He's. He's, but he's basically saying, bring it on. He's not, yeah. he's not afraid. Yeah. He says a lot of great stuff. I mean, you know, he's I've writing really during this, yeah. persecution. Mm-hmm. Probably even more widespread heavy persecution than even the apostles because yeah. the church has grown. It's empire-wide. Mm-hmm. Right. But uh, one of the things he talks about is uh, he says that the last time, this is in his letter to the Ephesians, the last times have come upon us. Let us therefore be of reverent spirit and fear the long suffering of God that attend not toward our condemnation. He says in uh, Ephesians 15, it is better, uh, his letter to the Ephesians 15, it is better for a man to be silent and be a Christian than to talk and not to be one. It is good to teach if he who speaks also acts. Uh, he actually, in his letter to the Romans, he, he asks that, I mean, he's basically saying like, don't, don't talk about it, do yeah, it. Yeah. Like walk the Christian yep. life, even unto martyrdom. And he basically says, look, uh, I'm cool with being a martyr. Hmm. Like it's better for me to depart. It's better for me to be raised with Christ. And uh, just incredible courage for Christ in the face of opposition. 
Well, he, he, he was, we know he's friends with Polycarp and he writes, one of the letters that he writes on his journey to execution is a short letter to Polycarp, basically just strengthening him in the faith. And imagine getting a letter like that from another bishop who's on his way to be executed. And he just tells you like, I'll be fine. Just keep the church, keep the faith, keep going strong. You'll be fine. And I'll see you one day. That's just kind of cool. I mean, it's incredible faith. Yeah. Uh, we also see, this is a little side note, but again, this is, Again, what's cool about reading these letters is how they reference uh, the New Testament, oh, not yeah. just as like Tons. this was written in the Bible, but yeah. like we knew these guys and we knew this event. So right. Clement <clears throat> refers back to First and Second Corinthians, mm-hmm. talking about this, the, the church at Corinth, and he says like, hey, remember when Paul wrote you that letter? Right. I mean, but he knew Paul, yeah. or at least he knew of people who knew Paul, sure. right? Well, here in Ephesians, the first, uh, his letter to the Ephesians, he says, I received therefore your whole multitude in the name of God through... Anesimus, or one Seamus, or whatever, yeah. a man of inexpressible love, and your bishop in the flesh. So yeah. uh, apparently, Anesimus was a bishop of the church at Ephesus, yep. the gathering of churches <clears throat> there. And what's significant about that, Paul? It's it's likely that it's the same Anesimus that Paul mentions in his letter to Philemon, who was the, a slave. the escaped slave, and says, right. Philemon, right. take him back, treat him as a brother in the Lord. And so it falls within the right time period. And we already know that Ignatius had contact with the apostles. And so it's very likely that Anesimus goes from slave to bishop of Ephesus, which, which is, is pretty incredible. Cool. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the the, the um, social status flattening yeah. that the New Testament community, that, that Christianity You can have gives. this mobility in, right. in social class. Right, you can class. have yep. a slave. And mm-hmm. we don't know if he's free. I mean, he might be free. I, yeah. I don't know. But, uh, but he's a bishop. Right, and can you imagine being uh, somebody of nobility listening to a former slave as your talk about an figure? upending of the current order? I mean, yeah. the whole "the last will be first is that's not like some cute metaphor. That's that's the reality of the kingdom of God. Sure, yeah. And uh, so on on that note, though, of referencing the New Testament, so we he definitely in his letter to the Romans sees himself as different from Paul and Peter where he says, I'm not as Paul and Peter issuing commandments unto you because they are apostles. I'm but merely a condemned man. So again, this theme that we see from Polycarp, Clement, Ignatius, all the apostolic fathers that the apostles are in a a class of their own. And then you have this second tier of their disciples. They're they're doing what they were appointed to do, which is lead the church in the absence of the, the apostles. But their writings and their teachings are not authoritative in the same way. There's a qualitative difference between what Paul, Peter, and John said and what Polycarp, Clement, and Ignatius say in terms of that level of authority. Ignatius doesn't see himself on the level of Paul and Peter. Right. And that's that's important to note that they're, they're looking at the apostles again, like you're saying. I mean, they're, they're a different tier. Right. That's who you cite. Right. That's yeah. who you cite. Now, that doesn't remove the fact that they too had authority as bishops. Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I know that's what you're saying. And and so, well, we can actually, let's get to the topic of bishops because this is probably the bulk of the interesting material. Oh man, every letter he mentions this. Right. Now, one of the things he says is, I'm just gonna read a few quotations. Um, This is from his letter to the Ephesians. He says, uh, uh, for we ought to receive everyone whom the master of the house sends to be over his household as we would do him that sent him. It is manifest therefore that we should look upon the bishop even as we would upon the Lord himself. He also writes in Ephesians, uh, wherefore it is fitting that you should run together in accordance with the will of your bishop, 
which thing you also do. For your justly renowned presbytery, worthy of God, is fitted as exactly to the bishop as the strings are to the harp. I love that image. Right. So he's saying the, the bishop is basically the, the I guess, the harp. The structure and then yeah, the, the structure strings. And then the, the bishops are the individual or The, the elders. Uh, the elders are the individual mm-hmm. strings. Yep. So uh, he says in his letter to the Magnesians, he basically says, look, you got a young bishop. I get that. I get that he's young, but mm-hmm. you should still revere him, right? Uh, revere him as somebody whom God has called to be over you. Um, and he also says in Magnesians um, that if those people who are uh, giving people the title of bishop, right, but they do all things without him, if mm-hmm. you don't recognize the bishop's authority, uh, that's a big deal. Yeah. Right? That's that's a problem, right? And he continues on. He talks about how uh, uh, he, he tells them, I want, I exhort you to study, to do all things with a divine harmony while your bishop presides in the place of God. So he's not saying that the bishop is God, but sure. he's basically saying that the bishop is a a, a representative or a instrument of God's right. care for right. his church, and your presbyters in the place of the of the assembly of the apostles. So he, so he makes this, you know, God uh, sent the apostles, and so the bishop is over the presbyters, yep. the elders. Again, this is what he's saying, not necessarily what should be done, but along with your deacons who are most dear to me and are entrusted with the ministry of Jesus Christ. So in the early church, you have the bishop, you have the presbyters, who are the elders, or we would call them pastors, Mm -hmm. and then you have uh, the deacons. Right. And so there seems to be a threefold kind of division there. And he... He literally mentions this in every single letter. He talks about don't oppose the bishop, don't oppose the authorities that God has placed over you. And it's in this, it's in a bigger argument for a call for unity. So Ignatius is really big on trying to root out divisiveness in the church, trying to get people under the same banner. Uh, He tells Polycarp, meet more frequently, get the body of believers together. He even tells him, seek out all the men by name. So like people, if people are not showing up to the weekly gatherings, Go and call them out by name. This person's not showing up. You got to get them there. And then in the letter to the Ephesians, he says, take heed, often come together, give thanks to God, because when you come together in the same place, the powers of Satan are destroyed. So it's a really strong view of what the church is doing in terms of corporate worship. It's it's not just this social gathering. It's not just this feel-good place. He thinks that actually there's a spiritual war that's taking place and the fiery darts of sin are falling back. There's a concord and harmonious faith that destroys the devil. Um, it's just the language that he uses to describe corporate worship is really beautiful. Oh, yeah. And he like, you, like you gather together as much as you can. That's basically yeah. what he's telling him. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I mean, he views the church as a physical, visible entity. Right. Right. I mean, he's not just saying, well, the church is everybody at Starbucks who's a Christian. <laughs> and, you know, no, he's like, no, when you're a gathered, unified group together, he's like, you're doing warfare. I mean, that'd be a great, it's like, uh, you know, come come to church on Sunday because this is how we dismantle the powers and principalities yeah. of, of the world, right? How we defeat the powers of Satan. Uh, but yeah, very local church mm. gathering center. I mean, and they didn't have the internet. They didn't have whatever, you know, all this other sure. stuff. I mean, they 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 needed each other. They're, they're being persecuted. I mean, it's out of necessity. Right. But I think this is something that we can draw upon for sure we we need to gather as a full church not just as small groups not just as bible studies Mm. but the whole church gathering together 
uh, assembling in the same place. Well, and, and even with the emphasis on the local church, he does, the way he talks about in his letters, the other churches, there is a connectedness. So the church in Smyrna knows about the church in Ephesus, and they know about the church in Corinth, and they know about the church in Philippi. And he mentions their bishops by name as if they're all sort of in this one unit together. And so even though he's encouraging people to attend local congregations, he's reminding them that they are part of something much bigger that extends throughout the Roman Empire where you've got the Bishop of Smyrna and he said, he came and visited me once, or I went over there and you guys met him all. And so there is a, a, a much larger picture and that you get sort of the beginning of the global church emerging here in the first century. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just, it's cool to read about. Well, the, the bishops and the presbyters are a tool of God to create unity in the church. I mean, one of the things he's talking about here is, uh, how do these churches know about each other? Well, because they're connected by people. Right, right. They're connected by people individuals. People going back and forth, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's really significant. Um, and by the way, we already have that today. We might not have an original, like even in, a, you know, we're in a non-denominational church. Sure. But there's still connections with key individuals, mm -hmm. right? How do we know about different church plants? Well, we, we're part of different networks who have different people who are over it. I mean, we, we you can't avoid, if you're going to have networks between local churches, you're going to have, the best way to do it is through people that are, that are the connecting points. Hmm. And, and we see that from the very beginning of the church. So it's a, it's a very powerful statement today. It's like, we're in the church today. Do we have relationships with the churches in our region? Right. Yeah. And if we don't, are we doing something unbiblical? <clears throat> hmm. You know, should we care about churches in other regions too? How, how does that work? Are we missing something? Are we, are we too sectioned off? It's important question to ask. The other thing that's important is that this is to fight against false teaching. Yeah. I was just going to mention against that. heretics. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, if you want to talk about some of the heretics that he's trying to go after and, and, and especially how does, how does the, the office of bishop and the presbyters and, and the unity of the church, how does that protect against heresies? Yeah, so so two, it seems like there's two main groups of heretics that Ignatius is worried about. One is the Judaizers that we see Paul talk about in Galatians. And these are basically the guys who are saying, we need to adhere to certain elements of the Old Testament law. You need to be circumcised, all this stuff. Uh, Ignatius says, that's not, you know, we've already dealt with that in the New Testament period. Don't be led astray by these teachers. And the second category is the, the docetics or the, the doketics that we saw with Polycarp uh, dealing with as well. And these were the group who said basically Jesus or the son of God only appeared to have a human body, uh, didn't actually have a human body. And so in his letter to the Smyrnians, Ignatius says, I know that after his resurrection, he was still possessed of flesh and I believe he is so now. Um, and he said to them, lay hold of me, handle me, touch me, see that I'm not an incorporeal spirit. And immediately the disciples touched him and believed, being convinced both by his flesh and his spirit. Uh, and then later he says also, kind of just like tongue in cheek, if these things that the Lord did were only in appearance, then I'm also only bound in prison in appearance, right? Right. <laughs> so he's just like, he's been poking fun. Um, why also have I also surrendered myself to death, to fire, to the sword, to the wild beasts, if in fact... Uh, all the stuff that Jesus did was in appearance only. So he's basically saying there's no point in suffering. There's no point in meeting if Jesus isn't actually in the flesh. I undergo all these things that I might suffer together with him. Um, and I do that only because Jesus was actually here in the flesh. So basically the docetic heresy, if the son of God wasn't really in the flesh, then it means Christianity is not true. 
But he uses the, the bishops and the presbyters as you need to follow those in authority over you to make sure that you're not led astray by these false teachers. If you're trying to do Christianity on your own, if you're just listening to everybody who comes by and says, I'm speaking in the name of the Lord, you might get led astray. So run these teaching past those who are in authority overview and make sure that they line up with the teachings of the apostles. So these leaders are there for your protection. Right. I mean, and, and remember, yeah, Ignatius, if he was a disciple of John, I mean, he was a disciple yeah. of John. And somebody's going like, what's the deal with this? You know, what's the deal with the gospel of John? And did this really happen? He'd be like, yeah, it did. Yeah. I mean, John told me. Mm -hmm. Right. So these are direct sources to the apostles. I mean, it, it's it's sort of like if you heard, uh, you know, some famous author, you know, writes something about his life and he has this crazy story. And then you're like, did that really happen? And then you talk to his like brother yeah. or you talk to like his neighbor, you talk to his best friend who was there uh, or you talk to his son or something like that. Hmm. You'll get a good, it, it's, a, it's affirming of their testimony. And so again, their connection to these men is, is really important for preserving doctrine, like you said. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, if you don't believe me, just try, try to come up with the doctrine of the Trinity just by reading the New Testament. You're going to come up with some wacky some stuff. Some weird, yep. Right? Because it takes a lot of thought, a lot of study of scripture, a lot of philosophical reasoning. And community. And community yeah. to articulate the doctrines of the church. Right. And so we want to draw upon those riches. Why, why would you, why make it harder on us than it needs to be? Hmm. It doesn't mean that there's unanimous consent on all of these issues in the church, but it does mean for the main things, those are pretty crystal clear. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and again, the bishops and the gathered elders in the presbytery are a, a, are a tool that God used at that time to hmm. preserve the teaching of the apostles for the generations so that people couldn't just show up and go, I mean, if you want to start a, a schismatic organization. I mean, he talks about this schisms, people who are, you know, trying to uh, uh, come up with false teachings and create their own branch of Christianity. If you want to do that, you're going to be like, that's what Paul said. Or are you going to forge a letter? You're going to say that John taught this, right, or Peter right. really meant this. <clears throat> well, then how are you going to refute them? Yeah. Well, you want to talk to the people who actually knew the guy. That's right. Again, so this is why that's really, it was really important in the early church. Um, but great martyr, great defender of orthodoxy, great uh, pastor, really. I mean, bishop pastoring these elders and also pastoring the regions through them. Um, yeah. Can I read really one more incredible. quote? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> this was one that I forgot to mention, but he has, a. this is actually one of the most famous Ignatius quotes, and it's where he gives his Christology, basically his doctrine of Christ. And you can see almost like a precursor in this to what we say in the Nicene Creed. In the letter to the Ephesians, he says, there's one physician who is possessed both of flesh and spirit, both made and unmade, God existing in flesh, true life in his death, born of Mary and of God, first passable and then impassable, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So it has that uh, almost creedal formula right. to it. And remember, this is still in the first century. Right. So he's affirming the deity of Christ. He's affirming that uh, Jesus is in one sense made, in another sense unmade, made in his human nature, unmade in his eternal nature as a son of God, existing in the flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, passable, impassable. Um, and yeah, so this is a really early formulation of a high Christology, of a view that sees Jesus as um, being God. And yeah, there you go. Great stuff. Good Thank stuff. you guys for tuning in. And uh, if you get a chance, all of these letters are available online. 
So you can just yep. peruse them, look through them. Um, I think they, they're, they're helpful to look through. Again, they're not scripture. There's some weird stuff. There's stuff that, you know, we, we, we would the not. The phoenix. Yeah, the, the, the phoenix. Phoenixes don't exist, at least as far as I know. And uh, But still can be very helpful to read, uh, even though they're, they're, we wouldn't consider them to be canonical. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Still, still good stuff. In there. Yeah. Subscribe to our podcast. We're going to be back next week. Thank you guys for listening. We're out.